reflecting on uh, my first experience of retreat and how at about this point, end of the second full day, how I was really ready to go home. And, uh, well, I'd been ready to go home since I got there, basically, but especially at the end of that second day, and um, just all the doubt that I experienced, um, all of the ways that I started to project and compare what I was experiencing to what I thought everyone else was probably experiencing, uh, to what I thought I was supposed to be experiencing. And how grateful I am that I stayed and that I didn't let my mind chase me out of uh, that retreat or out of this practice. At that point, I was only 19 years old and I'd been meditating for a couple of years. And I had some faith in the practice. Um, I had started practicing a couple years earlier while I was in jail when I was a teenager. And when I'd been given the initial instructions just to pay attention to the breath, uh, and I believe I was encouraged to maybe even count breathing in one, Breathing out two. Breathing in three and try to get to ten. <laughs> uh, and if you can't get to ten, I was told, you know, just start over at one. And I couldn't get to ten. I could get to like two or three and then get lost in the mind's plans and memories and in the anger and resentments and I had a very powerful initial experience with mindfulness. It was a revelation to me to find out that I could choose whether or not to stay lost in what my mind was doing, to stay identified, to stay in the resentment or the fear or the I never knew that we that I <laughs> had any choice about that my, my whole life before I started meditating I just did whatever my mind told me to do and uh, my mind told me to do some really bad shit <laughs> and it got me in a lot of trouble and as I began the mindfulness practice and realizing that I could Take my, take my attention out of my thoughts and into my body and have a moment, momentary uh, reprieve from being identified with that anger or that fear or that 
mostly anger and fear was all I was seeing <laughs> at that uh, point in my life. Uh, reflecting and, and ask us to reflect as a group a little bit of what gives us uh, the confidence to continue or the faith to carry on when it's not going the way we uh, thought it was going to go or wanted it to go or when we're not being as successful at letting go of the the thought world as we'd like to be. Sometimes in Buddhism, and I'm often guilty of it myself, of sort of preaching this, Buddhism doesn't ask for any faith. All of it is just your direct experience. You don't have to believe anything. You heard that before? But actually, it's not completely true. I think that what that statement is going towards is that ultimately everything that the Buddha is teaching is... uh, We have the ability to experience for ourselves eventually. You don't have to have blind faith. Maybe the common definition of faith is believing something that's absolutely not true. (laughs) Have faith in this. Believe this uh, philosophy that's absolutely not true. Um. But in Buddhism, it's saying that you'll be able to know the truth completely for yourself eventually. In the long run, you don't have to believe anyone but your own direct experience. But in the beginning, we do need some faith that this is going to work when it's not really working very well yet. After the Buddha's awakening, when he reflected back on how he had practiced for several years and studied with some teachers and practiced in the forest and come around to his experience of freedom and discovery of mindfulness... When he reflected back after his awakening, uh, to me, when I read the suttas, the, the scriptures, the teachings, it almost feels like he's a little surprised. He's like, okay, I've been going for this and going for this, and it happened. And there's this kind of like, how did, how did I get here? <laughs> it worked. Oh, shit. How did I get here? And as he reflected back, he said the first thing for him, and then turned it into a teaching, uh, the prerequisite seems to be faith. You have to believe it's possible to even try it. You have to have some confidence to even try it. My own experience with that was that I'd grown up around meditators, around Buddhists. I didn't have any faith. I didn't have any 
didn't feel like I had much confidence in what they're doing. It didn't make sense to me, people sitting around with their eyes closed. It seemed like a waste of time. I didn't get it. But my own mind, body, craving, aversion, what turned into addiction and a life of crime and violence, led me down such a a path of suffering that eventually I came to the willingness to say, I'll even try meditation. It's gotten this bad. I've sunk in this low. And the piece of faith, the kernel of faith for me, was in my father, who was my uh, meditation instructor, the first person that gave me the instructions, is that I knew, um, even though it didn't quite make sense, I knew he was a lot happier than I was. And it helped me a bit that uh, at that time he shared with me that a big part of the reason why he practiced the Dharma and was a teacher of the Dharma was that in his early life he had come to the Dharma Um, as a solution to addiction. Um, He had done time in prison before I was born. That all of his life of service and uh, Dharma practice and teaching, because he had been in a similar place to where I then was. And that gave me some confidence, some hope. I had some faith in him and the possibility that even something that didn't quite make sense to me might help. I was desperate. I was hopeless. My first couple of years of meditation practice, uh, I was first locked up for many months in this jail cell and then into a, a group home, a youth home. And I would practice um, regularly those first few months, but kind of in the closet about it. Certainly wasn't going to admit to any of my peers, uh, felon peers in the institution that I was uh, meditating. But I was getting momentary, I was getting a little bit of relief. A little bit of relief from the suffering that I was experiencing and creating. Eventually, what happened, took a couple of years, but eventually what happened was I I exhausted all other possibilities. I started meditating, but I still reserved some delusion (laughs) that maybe I could find happiness if I was off the drugs, if I was out of jail, if I got the stuff that I thought might make me happy, the right car, the right motorcycle, 
the right uh, record collection, the right girlfriend, enough stuff. I still reserved, I I knew that meditation was uh, helping, but I still thought that maybe there was an external solution. Maybe. Maybe if I got the right balance of things, (laughs) that would be enough. And I had to prove that thesis, that theory, wrong. And so I found myself within a couple of years with the car and the motorcycle and the girlfriend, the stuff. Miserable. It didn't work. I got what I wanted. Got everything that I thought would make me happy. And it was at that point, uh, and, and I got into a bunch of trouble, and some of you know the story, and you know, I was continuing to lie and steal and cheat and to get the stuff that I thought might make me happy. But it was at that point that the faith that I had in meditation was the only guiding principle. It felt like really my only hope. And it wasn't 100%, uh, but it just felt like uh, if there's any hope in this world, it has to be this practice. Because it's the only thing that is giving me any moments of ease. It's giving me any freedom from the stress and fear and suffering that I create for myself constantly. And when I went on that first retreat and I wanted to leave most of the time and uh, I sort of have a an idea that I felt a bit like uh, I was drowning in this sea of suffering and ignorance and greed and hatred and and along came this life uh, boat this kind of rescue vessel but it was filled with hippies (laughs) and I was on that first retreat and I was a 19 year old punk rock kid and I looked around and I felt I was the only young person and I was the only uh, and I felt like man is this what it's going to take and when I wanted to leave uh, that retreat it felt like uh, I wanted to reject the uh, uh, life raft. Like I had a sense that this is my only hope, but maybe, uh, maybe I'll just give up. I didn't doubt the Dharma. Some, some of us get into the other side of doubt, of lack of faith that says this doesn't work. I, 
had some, I knew this worked. I just didn't know whether I was willing to follow through. And some of it was uh, those questions that were brought up this morning. What will I be? Who will I be if I really surrender? If I really practice? If I really follow through? Who will I be without my anger, without my fear, without my suffering? Like Vinny said, will I become a, will I need a wheelbarrow? (laughs) Will I just become a blob of happiness? (laughs) Will I become some sort of blob of peace? I remember going to, uh, Jack Cornfield was teaching that retreat with uh, another one of the Spirit Rock teachers, uh, Mary Orr. I remember going to Mary Orr on that second day and saying, well, I think I, think I might leave. I think it was only a four-day retreat too. And she's like, you're halfway through. Like, <laughs> I think I might leave. She said, well, stay for the talk. Maybe that'll help. If you really want to leave after the talk, you know, go in the morning the next day. I don't remember what the talk was about, but I just remember uh, staying and getting through that first retreat, giving me more uh, confidence. Oh, I can do this. I don't have to leave. I don't have to do what my mind tells me to do. The Buddha said that the second, first faith, we have to have some confidence, some faith, some, we have to be inspired, um, but that that's not enough. In, uh, uh, in the recovery programs, in the 12-step uh, recovery programs, they say faith without work, without works, is dead. It's nothing. Now you can believe I think that there's a lot of that going on in uh, people who are into Buddhism in America. A lot. Read, I read all the books, totally have faith in Buddhism. I don't meditate, but I totally just, I have, I have faith in it. I believe. But without doing the work, you don't really get anywhere. That's the piece that I don't actually, I don't have figured out of what it is in, the, in us, in me, in you, that gives us the willingness to do the work. So a lot of people come to the place of some faith, of understanding the Buddha's teachings and that the Dharma is or could be transformative, but actually getting the willingness to put the effort in to getting your ass on retreat and your ass on the cushion in a long term way not just one or two retreats and then like oh yeah I did that I meet mean, a lot of people like oh yeah I did some retreats in the 70s but what sustains us sustainable effort to be able to dedicate our life's energy to this path. 
in one of the suttas, the Buddha uh, uses an analogy. He says, it's as though I was walking through the jungle or through a forest or the wilderness and I came upon a uh, lost, uh, forgotten city. The ruins. In my practice, it feels a little bit like that. As I began to meditate, as I came to the retreats, as I practiced the mindfulness, that I started to sense the mindfulness worked inside of me. I hope it's working inside of you. Uh, felt like um, some sort of uh, like metal detector. On the surface, I was still mostly just seeing anger and fear and suffering. But I, got, I started to get this sense, oh, there's something else under there. There's some ruins. There's some lost, something lost. Some lost city, some lost civilization, some lost part of my heart. I didn't have access to it so far away from it in the beginning. But a sense that, oh, there's something under there. I can imagine the Buddha walking and it's like um, if you've ever been to ruins that haven't been excavated yet. It just looks like a mound. And maybe there's a little brick sticking out or something, but it's not. You don't actually see the ruins. I don't know if people have seen pictures of Angkor Wat or some of these old Buddhist ruins. But when they find them, they're just mountains. They're just big piles of dirt. And it takes a long time to uncover, to excavate the that which is within us. It's always been there. I like this feeling of, or this analogy of excavating But that sometimes in the practice, as I look back on the er early years of practice and the long process of uh, meditation and uncovering and continuing following through with the practice, that there's uh, there's been so much uh, um, there's so much shit to uncover. that we start digging. The mindfulness is like a shovel and we're digging and we're digging. And that sometimes we're just coming across all of the skeletons, all of the refuse. Someone said that Vipassana meditation, we call it a purification practice. All of the uh, difficult stuff has to come to the surface where it can be healed. Somebody turned that analogy. They said, you know, it's like plunging a toilet. <laughs> you sit here and you plunge and all the shit comes up and it stinks and you're just in your own stink. 
your stinky mind and your uncomfortable body and all the resistance to it, the natural aversion and craving for it to be different than it is. We see it more and more clearly and we smell it more and more acutely. I'm not sure what will sustain you through this retreat or through your life of practice. I think that a part of it for me is uh, the blessing of having a uh, addictive tendency. A compulsive and addictive tendency. Because when I find something that might work even a little bit to alleviate my suffering, I'll probably do it over and over and over until I get locked up for it. We can channel that in. Uh, and I think maybe, maybe as a ex-drug addict that there's an extreme of that. But I actually think that that's a universal human, part of the human condition. It's the second noble truth of the Buddha, the craving in life. That if uh, channeled towards unwholesome, towards thinking we're going to find happiness in sense pleasures, destroys our lives. But if we can channel that craving towards the wholesome that craving turn it into a a craving for freedom for liberation then it will be what energizes our practice it is and has been what energizes my devotion and commitment to practice over the years My early uh, days of practice, you know, in America, we have the sort of spiritual supermarket. You go into the bookstore and you can check out the Sufi books and you can check out the 50 different uh, forms of Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism and Zen and Vipassana. And you can check out the uh, kirtans and the yoga classes. And in my early practice, I'd, you know, a typical week might be like going and chanting with the Hare Krishnas and going and dancing with the Sufis and going and doing Vipassana and seeing what Tibetan Lama was coming through for an empowerment and what guru we could go and get darshan from. It was all very exciting. And um, Eventually, for me, and I think this is also some of my tendency towards addiction to intensity is that when I started doing retreats and longer retreats and 10-day retreats and month-long retreats and three-month retreats and that I just settled in like this is the heroine of spiritual practice. I'm not interested in the wine coolers. I don't want a cheap buzz. I want nirvana. I want total freedom. 
I want real liberation. I don't want to chant until I feel good temporarily. I want to sit until I'm free from the suffering that my mind creates. And that that uh, freedom that can be taken with me, taken with us in all aspects of our lives, not just on retreat, but that this is the formal training ground for a transformation. That is attainable and accessible on the freeway, at work, in our relationships, even when we're in conflict. In this sutta about the city, when the Buddha says, you know, it's like I discovered this city. It's interesting that what he, uh, he said was that, you know, and I, I began to excavate it, but not by myself. I went and I found the king. I went and found the people with power and money, and I told them about it, and I asked them with me to come and to uh, uh, refurbish and uh, recreate this city so that we could re-inhabit it together. I went and created community. When I'm here at Spirit Rock, it feels uh, a bit like that's what's happened here. Uh, Some of our early teachers found, rediscovered, they found the Dharma in Asia in the 60s. And then they came back and they said, I found this precious, transformative practice, path. And they created this city that we're sitting in tonight, this temple. They found the people with money. They built this $10 million retreat center. And we have the great blessing this opportunity to come and to sit here in community that has been provided for us and to do our own internal excavation. But that this teaching is both about uncovering, having the faith to continue, having the energy to persevere, but also to creating an enlightened community together. Not just by ourselves, we are by ourselves, but in support of each other. Over the years, I've tried to do some uh, solo retreats with varying levels of success. (laughs) So nice to have 50 people that you're not talking to. (laughs) You're not even looking at. But they're still supporting you, doing what you're doing. I hope that uh, this experience that we're providing of 
uh, meeting together in groups helps normalize. One of the problems with doing the individual things is that you can stay stuck in, well, my experience is really different than everyone else's. Everyone else is really happy. They're enjoying this retreat. They're totally comfortable in their bodies. It's nice to come in together in a group and to say, oh, wow, this is filled with both sorrow and joy for all of us. This is a difficult process. This is some heavy lifting, this excavating. One of the things that occurs to me is that this practice continues. Vinny said this this morning, he said, on my early retreats when I still thought there was some hope for enlightenment. (laughs) And I felt that way in my early days too, like uh, there's a finish line and I'm going to get there. And hopefully before you. Now I feel like there's this uh, excavation of my own heart and mind that has been going on for over 20 years now. And more and more is revealed all the time, uncovered. And that sometimes, you know, we get to the, this level and we're like, oh, wow, look at this whole uh, thing that has been uncovered, the kindness, the forgiveness, it's there. And then you realize, oh, wait, there's still a door here. <laughs> there's a trap door in this floor. There's more below this. I'm actually just uh, uncovering a a skyscraper and I'm only on the 50th floor. (laughs) There's a long way to go. One of my current uh, practices is parenting. And uh, I remember when we we were pregnant and the excitement of a child coming and People saying like, oh, it's going to change your life. It's going to open your heart. And I kind of cocky as I often am. And I was like, I feel like my heart's already open. Maybe that's true for people who are totally asleep and they have kids and it changes their life because they've been so ignorant their whole life. And finally they have someone to love. I don't know. (laughs) But that's not going to happen for me because... I'm already in love with myself. I don't know. <laughs> I can remember when my wife was pregnant and I was teaching a uh, reflections on death, a corpse meditation to my group in Los Angeles. And it was the first time that it really consciously occurred to me that my unborn child would die. Was subject to sickness and old age and death. And it was like, wow, here's a whole nother level of living with the consequences of love 
end in this impermanence, permanent world. Here's a whole nother level of letting go, of practice, of acceptance. And my daughter teaches me a lot. It really is a practice. Honestly, it's mostly a practice of joy. Mostly. And it's also a practice of letting go. What I wanted to say this morning when uh, we were, some of those questions were coming up about being attached to our suffering and uh, the kind of fear of letting go of it. And I just want to assure you that it is totally and completely safe to let go, to let go completely. We won't turn into blobs. Sort of the good and the bad news is that no matter how many insights we have, no matter how free we get, it actually doesn't change your personality at all. So that's kind of good news. It's like you're always going to be you. You're going to like what you like and have your quirks of your personality. and You don't have to worry about becoming boring. Unless you're already boring, then. <laughs> then you're already used to it anyways. The bad news is, is that it doesn't change your personality. You're stuck with it. This conditioned mind. My experience is that my relationship to my personality has changed a lot. My relationship to craving, to aversion, to fear and anger and resentment, the practices of forgiveness and loving kindness, compassion and mindfulness have had a drastic impact on my perspective as they I'm sure have had on yours and will have on yours but it's a gradual transformation of perspective but it's one that's taking place with each mindful breath, with each mindful footstep. A few years ago, someone asked the Dalai Lama, uh, what was the fastest, quickest, and easiest way to get enlightened? And I heard that he started crying when he was asked that question because it was like, oh, there's really no hope for these people. 
(laughs) And he said, I never want to hear that question again. There's no fast, quick, easy way. You have to do the work, the heavy lifting, the excavation, the mindfulness and the uh, compassion practices. And his suggestion, and I think it's such a good suggestion, and I love to take it for myself, uh, which is commit. When you have the confidence, and you have it, you're here. You have the faith, you're here. Apply the energy, the effort, follow through. He said, and check in on your progress once every decade or so. You've been here for a couple of days on retreat. Don't think about what you're getting right now from this retreat. Know that you're in the process of uncovering your true heart. And in a decade, see, are you closer? Are you more free? And in two decades, and in three decades, I'm a couple decades in and I feel um, like I'm really happy with how well the practice has been working. And I know I've got a long way to go. That it continues. That the practice continues. each mindful breath, each loving kindness phrase, each intention to be forgiving as uh, another shovel. Uncovering your, or recovering that place within you that has always been there. That the mindfulness has Maybe you've heard calling to you. But we don't know how deeply buried it is. And we don't know how long it's going to take for our karmic purification to take place. Joanna said to me earlier... um, about how when she had uh, started doing metta... Uh, how it didn't she didn't like it and it didn't have much faith in it and that she heard a teacher Diana Winston say uh, that she just did loving kindness for herself for two years and didn't feel much and that after a couple of years of doing it she was going to start actually including others and not just herself in it. And, and she realized, oh, I'm still not quite ready to include others. I still don't really care enough about myself. And that something like that was what gave her the permission to say, oh, I can do that too. I could try this for a couple of years. I don't have, it doesn't, I don't have to feel anything in the beginning. It's okay if this takes five years. It's okay if this first decade or two of my practice doesn't bear as much fruit as I crave for it to.
what is certain is that you're on the right track. I hope you feel that. That these practices work. And you will have more and more freedom. More and more happiness. More and more ability to respond with compassion to the pain that arises in any moment. With non-attached appreciation to the pleasure that arises in any moment. Some of the last words that the Buddha ever spoke before he died, I'll leave you with tonight, and who knows, translations with these things, but one of the ways that it's translated and that I hear it is a reminder uh, to seek no external refuge. Don't look for it outside of yourself. And to continue practicing diligently this inward path, this path of turning towards your suffering and the causes of suffering. Seek no external. Know that everything that you're looking for is inside of you. And I'll leave it there and let's sit for a a moment before we end. May each one of us do what needs to be done. Not only for our own freedom, but for the benefit of this world. Together may we inhabit this lost civilization. And may we create a positive change in this world. 